This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to deliver radio broadcasts as you would have heard them 80 years ago during the days of World War II. Our episodes will be a mix of entertainment, news, and other information. This week, our episode features London After Dark as broadcast on August 24, 1940. It features coverage from CBS News of the city under attack during the Blitz. It includes segments from Edward R. Murrow, Eric Severi, and others. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you enjoy the show, please leave feedback wherever you listen. And now, on to this week's episode. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. London After Dark. At this time, the Columbia Broadcasting System brings you a special broadcast. Life in a blackout in the capital of Great Britain. During the next half hour, you will be in various parts of London, a city which had three air raid alarms today. The nerve center of empire. There will be pickups from various points in London, accounts of work, yes, and of play in this great city of a nation at war. And so we turn you over to Columbia's staff in the British capital, and we take you now to London. The hub of the British Empire in wartime, seen through Canadian eyes, through English eyes, and through American eyes. London at work and at play, from the unceasing grind of England's war effort to the relaxation of the crowds of duty. Come with us round London after dark in wartime. Canada's Sandy McPherson has led off our tour through London at the console of the theatre organ in St. George's Hall, notable as the home of magic in the London of Queen Victoria's day. And now we take you into the streets of blackout London, down stately crescent-shaped Regent Street, along Shaftesbury Avenue of theatre fame, into Charing Cross Road, London's Tin Pan Alley, and so to Trafalgar Square. Waiting there is Edward Murrow, known to you as Columbia's European director. Come in, Ed Murrow. Trafalgar Square. The noise that you hear at the moment is the sound of the air raid sirens. I'm standing here just on the steps of St. Martin's in the Fields. A searchlight just burst into action off in the distance. One single beam sweeping the sky above me now. People are walking along quite quietly. We're just at the entrance of an air raid shelter here, and I must move this cable over just a bit so people can walk in. 
I can see just straight away in front of me Lord Nelson on top of that big column. There's another searchlight just square behind Nelson's statue. I'll just let you listen to the traffic and the sound of the siren for a moment. Casually, a man stops in front of me to light a cigarette. Here comes one of those big red buses around the corner. Double-deckers, they are. Just a few lights on the top deck. In this blackness, it looks very much like a ship that's passing in the night, and you just see the portholes. There goes another bus. More searchlights come into action. You see them reach straight up into the sky, and occasionally they catch a cloud and seem to splash on the bottom of it. little traffic lights here, just a small cross on the normal globe, are now red. The cars pull up and stop. I'll just ooze down in the darkness here along these steps and see if I can pick up the sound of people's feet as they walk along. One of the strangest sounds one can hear in London these days, or rather these dark nights, just the sound of footsteps walking along the street, like ghosts shod with steel shoes. A taxi draws up just in front and stops, just waiting for that red light to change to green while the sirens howl. There it goes, and the cars move off. More searchlights are in action. We've not yet seen any burst of anti-aircraft fire overhead. And, of course, this doesn't necessarily mean that there are planes actually over London at this moment. We've had these warnings before, of course. You can hear the sirens just dying away in the distance now. An air raid warden walks out of this shelter. The shelter here, you know, is the crypt underneath this famous old church just on the edge of Trafalgar Square. The crypt where in days of peace homeless men and women were able to find a night's lodging. You can just hear now the steps of people coming up into this old church. And so, farewell to Falga Square. And now, after that unexpected air raid warning, we're going to take you to one of London's most ultra-hotels, where behind the blackout drapes, men and women are dancing in the main ballroom. We'll see what the effect is over there after the air raid warning. Saturday night, air raid warning or not, than the Savoy Kitchen. 
Bob Bowman of the CBC is stationed there now with the Savoy chef, Monsieur Latry. Take over, will you, Bob? you're hearing is not excitement because of an air raid, but just the busy orders providing people with meals there. And of course, I'm sure you're all licking your lips because uh, this kitchen, as probably a lot of you will know, is provided over by no less a person than Francois Latry, who is certainly one of the most famous chefs in the world. As a matter of fact, his culinary ability has brought him honors from many parts of the world. He's a chevalier of the French Legion of Honor, and he also is a holder of the Order of the Cordon Rouge which was established by Queen Mary. Well, tonight he's presiding over this white tile kitchen with its red floors, its battery of chefs, and flying black-coated waiters who are serving those people who are staying on right now, staying on and still dancing upstairs. It's wartime, and we have rationing. Nevertheless, I don't think you'd notice any difference at all. The menu tonight includes eight hors d'oeuvres, including caviar, eight different kinds of meat and game, and nevertheless... I don't want you to think that we're living luxuriously, sort of out of keeping with the war effort. Printed in red letters on the menu is this sentence. By agreement with the Ministry of Food, only one dish of meat or fish or poultry may be served at a meal. Still, that's not a great hardship, is it? Not to be able to have both fish and meat. And even at that, the genius of Mr. Latry comes into effect because he's designed marvelous crustas and platitravai, as he calls them, which have a fish base and which can be served before the main course. Things like, things like Crab Maryland and all that sort of thing. Well, here he is, Francois Latry, in his tall white cap. Francois Latry, one of the world's most famous chefs. I'm very happy to say hello to my friend across the Atlantic and to tell them we are well and food is plentiful. The war has not affected my cooking. Well, hasn't the war made any difference at all? Not at all. But not all London's enjoyment. These are dangerous days, wartime days, and not for an instant can the watch on London be relaxed, as, for example, the air raid warning we had a few minutes ago. And so, unobtrusively guarding the city as crowds go home, or as people sleep or night workers start their shift in armament factories, anti-aircraft guns are posted, such like batteries ready in an instant to pierce the sky. Somewhere in London at this very moment, Raymond Glendenning of the BBC is stationed at an anti-aircraft gun post, and we'll hear from him now. Well, here, standing as I am beside the command post, of an anti-aircraft battery somewhere in London. I'm able to give you a picture of Britain at war, Britain in action. Beside me at the moment are many khaki-clad figures, all with steel helmets and with their gas masks at the alert. Just over ten minutes ago, the siren sounded, warning the civilian population that an air raid was in progress. Before that, the alarm had been given here, and men had rushed from the huts where they were sleeping to their posts, manning the four guns, each in its own emplacement, and this central control point. The working of an anti-aircraft unit is entirely done from the command post. The instruments are on either side of us. As I stand here, just beside me is the spotter, 
of the identification telescope which is first able to locate the plane in the beams of the searchlights. At the moment, our actual uh, enemy planes are no longer in our vicinity. We've heard the drone of them overhead, but they seem to have gone away from us now to the northward. And at the moment, the spotter is only using a pair of binoculars. As soon as the searchlights, which about a few seconds ago were zigzagging across the sky, stabbing in all directions a myriad shafts of light looking for those enemy planes, they've all gone out one by one as the plane has passed on its way. And we're left here with the men just on their incessant vigil. This is just one of the pieces of practical turnout that they do at any time during the 24 hours and have been waiting to do at any time since this war started. Now, beside me is this spot or identification telescope, which as soon as the searchlights will get onto an enemy plane, will locate it. From that will be called the bearings and the angles of sight, which will enable a remarkable machine called the predictor in the left pit to get onto the plane, follow the target, and locate the guns. Now, here is the command from the GPO, who is the gun position officer. The predictor works its way around. The men are all standing attention. And now in this dim light, I can see the four long tapering gun barrels staking round till they come to the required bearing, which is in the direction of the expected enemy. Beside me, the height-finding apparatus, which this time is on my right, in the pit on my right, is now calling out the height at which the enemy is expected to come. I can now hear the distant drone of planes, searchlights, stabbing and crisscrossing across the clear sky and into the cloud and out again. It's some distance away at the moment. All there is here is absolute tenseness and vigilance. That was an anti-aircraft gun post, and no less vital than searchlight units and anti-aircraft batteries is another now familiar aspect of the London wartime scene. Air raid precautions, known simply as ARP. And so next we're going to take you to an ARP post just a few minutes after an air raid warning has sounded, where Larry Lesueur of CBS is waiting to set the scene as he sees it. Good evening, this is Larry Lesueur. The London air raid sirens have just counted. I'm standing in the vast basement of one of the largest apartment houses in the world. Around me are about a hundred people, but they're only a small fraction of London's great air raids precaution force, which is ready to push to the scene if bombs are dropped in this area. This is the organization, the one which the British gift for reducing everything to initials has shortened until it's simply called ARP. These ARP men and women are the ones who are standing by to help their fellow Londoners when the air raid sirens just sent the other eight and a quarter million into the air raid shelters. As I said before, the sirens have just sounded. And here's how the mechanics of this great air raid precaution system worked. Perhaps some half-dozen German bomber pilots penetrated the coastal defenses of Britain a few minutes ago. And they're heading for London. There may be only a half-dozen of them, but the killing powers of each man has been multiplied to incredible limits by science and high-explosive bombs. And observe in a lonely observation post spotted these German raiders coming over. He telephoned the information to the Air Force Fighter Command. And the fighter command determined what point the raiders were heading for. It was London. Then they phoned the London Control Center a few minutes ago. And that telephone message was passed on to the place where I'm standing now, about ten minutes ago. The message said simply, air raids message yellow. The word yellow stands for the same thing it does in traffic signals. 
Be on your guard. Everyone here grabbed up their equipment and stood up expectantly, with a keen look on their faces, men and women both. Then the telephone rang again. The words came through, air raids message read. And a few minutes later, the agonizing wail of the London sirens began, rising and falling in their quavering note. The people in this ARP station all got their equipment ready now, and they started the motors of their first aid cars and their ambulances. The doctor on duty is busy sterilizing his instruments and preparing his bandages. The German bombers may be nearby now. There's a drone of engines in the air. I can't tell, though, whether they're British or German planes. If a bomb drops in this ARP district, a telephone call or a messenger will instantly bring the news of its location. And each of these blue-uniformed ARP men and women carrying their full equipment, which consists of steel helmet, gas mask, gas clothing, boots, first aid equipment, and flashlight, will be driven to the steam in ambulances at fire engine speed. Now, for your benefit, Mr. William Sutton, superintendent of this ARP bureau, has arranged for a practice air raid bombing call to arrive at the station, although no bombs have been dropped nearby, so far as I know. We'll see how long it takes his men and women to get going. There goes the telephone now. Stretcher party in one, stretcher party. One ambulance, one car to 114 High Street, sector 220. Messenger, this is Stretcher party, one, stretcher party, 41. Right. You're into the High Street. Well, you've just heard the way that two vital spots in London's defense system reacted to an air raid warning. But now, let's get back to the bright lights, away to the west, to the Hammersmith Palais, London's giant dance hall. We'll see what's happening out there now that the sirens have sounded, and we'll see it and hear it from Columbia's Eric Severoid, who's standing with his portable microphone in the thick of the crowd. It's the biggest in England, and it's got the biggest crowd I ever saw trying to dance in one place at one time. There are 1,500 people in the place at the moment. It's 15 minutes before midnight, and that's the wartime closing hour for Saturday night. There was an air raid alarm, as you know, 15 minutes ago. The orchestra leader simply announced they'd go on playing if the crowd wished to stay, and I don't think more than a half a dozen people have left. They simply put up a big cheer and went on with their song. Eddie Carroll's orchestra is playing a song called A Nightingale Sang in Berkeley Square. This crowd loves this song, and judging from the last one, that partial to Old Johnny. We're a long ways from Berkeley Square. We're a six-penny bus ride from the heart of London. They come here by bus and subway. This is not Mayfair. Nobody comes here to be seen or to see. They come to dance for the pure pleasure of dancing. And any American who thinks the British are a phlegmatic race 
should see them dancing around me here tonight. They love dancing, and they shop girls, these workers, these grocers, clerks, these people who make up the stuff of England, they dance wonderfully well. They're not all English by a long ways. The New Zealanders, Australians, and Canadian soldiers and sailors are here, and I just met a couple of Texans, now in the RAF. There's a few French and Polish soldiers, and there right in front of me is a brave-looking Dutch officer in his well-tailored green, just gliding past. When they come in, these men take off their army boots and they're given little black dancing pumps. This was a dance place at the end of the last one. Well, it seems that it takes more than an air raid siren to dampen the gaiety at the Hammersmith Palais. But now, another long hop back to London's West End from west to east to the hub of the universe, center of cosmopolitan life in happier days, which we hope will soon return. We're taking you to London's heart of hearts, where on a balcony, stories about a Piccadilly Circus Vincent Sheehan of CBS is standing to describe Piccadilly after an air raid warning. I'm standing on the balcony on Piccadilly. Uh, perhaps I'd better tell you exactly where. It's the Piccadilly Hotel, about um, 150 yards from Piccadilly Circus, a little bit beyond St. James's Church. Uh, as you know, I suppose, I don't know if you heard the siren, but there is an air raid on, um, an air raid alarm, that is. Ten or fifteen minutes ago, there was plenty of traffic in this street, even in spite of the blackout. Uh, now, a good deal of it has drawn up to the curb or disappeared one way or another. People, I suppose, a good many of them have gone into shelters. And um, it's a little bit quieter than it usually is. Even in spite of the blackout and these alarms, which people in the center of London don't usually hear much of, Piccadilly is still the center of the shopping and the theater and cafe and restaurant life of London. I had dinner not long ago in a restaurant just off Piccadilly Circus, where there were um, Hungarians and Austrians playing their music, much as usual. The food didn't seem much different, nor did the crowd, except there were a lot of officers and uh, people on leave from the Army and the Navy Saturday night. They played uh, Viennese waltzes and other music of those countries which uh, no longer are able to play their music. The traffic um, seems to be not very much disturbed by the air raid. We've got taxis, and you probably can hear, I don't know whether you can hear or not, the buses still going on, some of them. The moon has just come up over the black buildings over there on the other side of Piccadilly Circus, the Criterion Restaurant. And uh, the searchlights, which a few minutes ago were uh, stabbing the whole sky with great long beams, seem to have disappeared altogether. Well, that was Piccadilly in the blackout during an air raid warning. And now from Piccadilly, we take you to a London terminus, smoky, sprawling Euston Station. It only costs a penny to buy a platform ticket, which allows us to mingle with the travelers who are about to leave for night rides north. And at Houston, we're going to hear from Michael Standing and Winfred Vaughn Thomas, both of BBC. 
Well, you're on number 13 platform at Houston Station, and let me tell you right away that this air raid warning has had very little effect here except for closing the sound and crossing the sound a bit. The platform's dim, there are only those very faint blue lights, blue discs lighting up the numbers of the platform, a few little dim red lights, and otherwise complete and abysmal darkness.
is someone who needs no introduction to you wherever you may be. To close our tour of London after dark and London in an air raid warning, J.B. Priestley. I'm sitting at an open window in Whitehall. The roar of traffic has dwindled to the few noises that you probably hear because, of course, of the air raid warning. We still get a few buses passing, a few cars. Just opposite me is the tall, pale, rather ghostly shape of the cenotaph commemorating a million dead. Many of them friends of mine, boys that I played with as a boy, men that might have been leaders now. Behind are the great government offices, the Home Office, the Colonial Office, the Treasury, the heart of our great capital city. It's also historic ground. Henry VIII married Anne Boleyn near here. Elizabeth saw Shakespeare's plays and the masks of Ben Jonson near here. Charles I was executed a few yards from where I'm sitting. It's historic ground, and I think today it's probably more deeply sunk in our world's history than ever. Because it's the very center of the hopes of free men everywhere. It's the heart of this bastion, this great rock, that's defying the dark tide of invasion that's destroyed freedom all over Western Europe. Soon, I hope, the all clear will come. Soon, I hope, London, which has worked hard all this week, can go quietly to bed, can go to sleep. I hope it will dream of a better world, a world when they could take the balloons out of the sky and the planes, dream that dream and not sleep too long, but make that dream of a better world come true. Good night. London After Dark, London in the Blackout, London in the midst of an air raid alarm, the world's largest city at midnight with air raiders in the vicinity. As this broadcast opened a half hour ago, the sound of sirens was heard, London's fourth air raid alarm of the day, sirens wailing and descriptions of searchlight beams fingering the sky, and you were taken from point to point in this London under alarm. The defenses of London were manned, but the nightlife continued and the dance bands played on. The CBS staff in Britain and the British Broadcasting Corporation brought you the eyewitness story of this city at war. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.